We all tell ourselves stories of who we are and why. But we forget that we have the power to define them. That no idea grows from mewling striped gum to teeth in your throat, tiger, without a little help, some guidance, and a whole lot of love along the way. I am Jaren Surf, and this is Here Be Tigers. Hi, I'm Jared Zurf, storytelling coach and host of Here Be Tigers. Here with me today is... I am David Herman, a.k.a. Ramnesis of the Brothers Herman and the host of Otter Worlds. And today we are going to be talking about making your story come to life, some of the challenges you might have, and a few ideas or exercises that you can try right now or starting today, whenever you hear the show. Two of the things that our fans, my students, and some of my clients have come to with frequently in the past few months are confusion, as in, I have no idea what I should write, or I've reached a point where I don't know what to write, and inertia. I have gotten so far, but I just cannot, for the life of me, put any words to paper, to tablet, etc., and I don't know why. And let's be honest, you and I have done a lot of writing over the years. This is something we all run into, writer's block, it's sometimes called, without oh, yeah. ever delving into why that is experienced, right? Well, because it's uh, because it's not one thing, it's oh. about five to ten different things that all get thrown under writer's block because... The symptom is that you can't write. And I think that's probably the, the first step is recognizing that the phenomenon that I, one, it's not that you can't write, or either you should, when you experience this moment, you do a minute to, I feel like I can't write right now. And this sounds silly to turn it into an I statement, but here, here is why. As my coach likes to say, yes, I have a coach too. I've been through some rough spots in life. Fear or fears, rather, or expectations that we assume will be real. In a sense, they're stories we tell ourselves. In this case, as David summarized during our notes, writer's block is actually us spending too much time or effort spelling a story of how we can't tell a story, right? Mm -hmm. What is that like when you encounter it? Uh, It's a couple of different things. Um, Actually, one of the most prominent ones for me, uh, I I eventually realized over the years, is uh, there is a very real the word that describes what I'm actually feeling, and it's not writer's block, it's boredom. <laughs> okay. And it's, it's not boredom with my idea. I Actually, the, to be fair, the, the word, if it wasn't taken for something much more, uh, much more serious that would fit, would be depression. It's a general malaise and a feeling like I don't really want to do anything and I'm looking for something to get out of my own head with. But for whatever reason, the normal things that I can use to get out of my own head, one of which would be writing or creating, they aren't applying. And the reason I go with the word boredom is because that it, a lot of times it's, it's that feeling comes because I need something to do. It comes because... I am, for lack of a better term, bored. I'm not getting the the input I ordinarily get. I'm not getting the output I ordinarily get. But it, it, it very much, those two words sum up where a lot of my, and I think it's really important to point this one out. It's not that I suddenly get struck with them. It's that it's a headspace I get into. That's why I don't want to really use the term depression because I'm not getting depressed. I do not want to make light of the people who are depressed but that same element of the stuff that you 
like doing isn't the, giving you the reward that you're used to. It's a sinkhole. That's true. Yeah, it's yeah. a sinkhole. But it, like, I don't want to. I want. I don't want to make light of the the real condition. I, I've experienced kind of a similar point or a phenomenon, I would say. And this goes back now that I look at it years. I to give you an idea of how much of a perfectionist I am at times. I used to in MS Paint do art pixel by pixel. Mm, done that. Yeah. And they were meticulous. Sometimes I'd recreate things I had drawn by hand or edit or revise them. And I know at one point before I had discovered how the autosave feature worked, I had a fit of peak or something, or I just didn't like it. And I swiped stupidly and washed over hours of work and paint. And there was no undoing it because I had saved over the core file. Mm. And the one and only core file. We didn't have layers back in those days. Or at least the software as a child I had didn't have layers. So there are likewise times as a writer, and I've been writing for years, where I can find a point of, where there's a, I arrive at a point of diminishing returns where I know, say, nine or 10 o'clock at night, I could continue to work, and I have in the past continued to work, and suddenly it's three, four, five a.m. And I've maybe, or at most, devised another few lines. They might be brilliant, beautiful, perfect lines, and I'll likely would spend five, six hours on them. And in reality, and what I've learned since, that's the time for me, I know, to step away. Why? Mm -hmm. Because one, I'll arrive at those same brilliant lines, even if I walk away from the work right now. My mind, your mind, any creative mind you can train it to, will not cease to work or think about or contemplate the idea simply because you are no longer consciously engaged with it. In fact, in a way, it's easier to step back and not think, strange as that sounds. Oh, yeah. And actually, I need to point out, because this is a trap I've gotten myself into, it's the corollary that goes along with this one. You will beat yourself up for it if you don't know it. Okay? And it is this. Your mind never stops working. If you're going to get those brilliant lines, you are going to get them anyway. The corollary is, if you think you had the brilliant lines and you lost them because you didn't write them down, you probably didn't have as brilliant. The lines you had probably weren't <laughs> as brilliant as you think they were. Don't uh, spend time beating yourself up over the stuff you've lost because chances are you never got the chance to look at it in a, in a good light in the first place. So let's. I want to sit on a little bit this idea of these actions or these experiences, phenomena, the confusion and the inertia and why fear drives both of them, right? Mm -hmm. Because as you said, the block is simply the the thing that we are encountering. And I will preface this by saying, knock and wood, that I've not had a block in years, and here's why. I understand the fears that drive them. It doesn't mean I cease to experience the fears, but I understand when and why they arise. And I have worked on ways since then to not get around them, but I almost I would almost say survive them. Because yes, you will feel overwhelmed at times. So oh, yeah. As you know, I've been walking on the trail as part of my writing routine for years because I needed to find a way to separate my creative time from my critical time. Right? I needed to physically separate those two times to help my mind do the same. My body already was trying to show me this is the way to go. My mind was a little slower on the way, and here's why. On the trail, I don't have anywhere near as much of an issue, not that I don't, but it's easier for me to slide into or to fall or to fall into the moment, the thing I am trying to write, to take the what if and follow that thread. And likewise, if the critical mind wakes up and says, oh, that's terrible, that sucks, I don't know where that's going, or the 12 lines you wrote before that don't lead up to this at all, all of those might be 
entirely as you know true. I have a theory about this too. Okay. No, I, my theory is only so many parts of your brain can be active at the moment. At a moment, if you're engaging a lot of your 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 sense of balance, a lot of your sense of you know navigation and all of that, you're not leaving the critical side of your mind enough breathing room, uh, and it's far easier to drop into creativity when you're moving than it is to drop into critical. Yeah, and, and self-recrimination when you're moving, probably because when you're exercising, you're getting a blast of like things that make it harder to, to be self-critical. So there's a preferential um, for that side of your mind. In this case, it was an observed phenomenon experience. And I do even to this day and have, particularly as I was recovering from this last illness, fallen into the deadliest trap of going too far back in my previous notes and trying to revise them as opposed to taking what I, the last things that I wrote. And here's Here's exercise number one or a technique number one, right? I'll present mine and then you can present one of your first solutions to this. Mm-hmm. For me, this fear of not knowing or being able to know what would happen next, of losing control of the narrative of the work I was doing, the time I was committing to it and so on, and all of those follow-up that arises from that. For me, that fear would push me back toward the things I already had written that I should then revise because it's, it's still work, but it's easier. It's a place that's known. I can quite easily spend two to three hours polishing a few lines. Is that a good use of my time? No. And it's also not fruitful for the work. So for me, when I go on the trail, I take whatever notes I've transcribed. I look at the last two or three lines. I call them the seed, as it were. I put my phone or tablet down, take up my my voice recorder, whatever device you're going to have to capture your thoughts, right? I start with those two lines. Were they good lines? Were they incredible lines? It doesn't matter. That's the beat I'm taking from and the one I follow to find what happens next. To your point, as much as there is fear of the unknown and what you might discover and how long that might take and what you have to commit and what if you don't, right? Mm -hmm. There is so much joy in the discovery. There's delight in the surprise. And I know from experience, having done this so many times, right? Even if I have the fear of not writing anything, not finding anything, that I will, and if not today, if not tonight, then at the end of the session, when I put the phone or device down, and after I get out of the shower, before I lie down to bed, or I'm watching a show or reading a book that night, then the idea arrives, right? So trust. You overcome. The first way to overcome this fear, these kinds of fears, establish another story and have trust and faith that that one is more accurate and true than the one you believe and perceived to be. This dovetails into two of the things I wanted to say, and I have to decide which one is more important right now. I will go with this. My favorite way of dealing with a fear um, is to drag it into the light. Stare it down, live it a little bit. Like how many times in your life have you had a fear been like, I can't deal with this. It's kept you paralyzed. And when you finally and inevitably experience it, it's nowhere near it's it's not only nowhere near as bad as you had your mind had blown it up to be it's nothing like your mind had ever considered anyway sometimes i find it really helpful with a fear to just pull it out take a deep look at it and go okay this is the really the worst you can throw at me so if that happens so what what like what if i if i get up in front of that room full of people and make an ass of myself because I didn't have it right. What's the worst that happens? You know, what like, like, oh, I'm going to be embarrassed. Yeah, I, I actually feel embarrassment more than a lot of people do. But at the end of the day, embarrassment is still fleeting. 
it's, it's not a big deal. It's not, I've lived it enough. It's like, okay, it doesn't end. Life goes on. What does it mean? Most people know this about either you or I, but neither of us, particularly at our childhood, were the kind of people to get in front of a mic or a stage. Not even remotely. Yeah. And at a certain point, it just became along the lines of, well, okay, I fear it still, but what, like, what does it actually mean? I, I, like one of the, some of the best ways of overcoming your fears are to actually experience it. I have literally told people, okay, great. That experience you just had was <laughs> awful. All right. You're absolutely like hurting right now and understand it will never be as bad to experience that ever again. You've got the worst over of it now. I like climbing. I hate heights. It's an odd combination. Mm-hmm. And when I was in New Zealand years ago, I decided in the course of, I think was it one day or two, to go both cliff diving and abseiling down, which is rappelling down waterfalls, and then gliding, which is flightless, going up in the air in a plane with no engine to fly, right? Mm-hmm. You're basically at the mercy of the thermals and the skill of the pilot, who in our case was a retired RAF guy who looked like Robert Redford. And then halfway through the flight, he goes, all right, your turn. <laughs> <laughs> and we're going, what? Now, granted, yes, he's there behind with a second set of controls to, uh, as uh, I remember, I did something. I don't remember when he goes, oh, you don't want to do that. And I go, why? He says, because we'll go down. <laughs> yeah, and what's the worst could happen? We can go down. In this case, obviously, we have the experienced pilot to go up with. But so do you when you are creating or finding, discovering, writing the story. Well, here's like, take your classic fear. Okay, you don't want to start something new because... What? It might not turn out well. You might not be able to use it. You might not. It won't be at all what I wanted it to be. All of those are going to happen to you. You cannot escape those. And if you and if you run from it, well, you're still living it out because you're still living in fear of it. You're just not getting any resolution. I have a client who confessed to me that the work they were trying to write touches upon things they are deeply in their own life personally afraid of. And that's a legitimate. It's a fictional story. And I, I've never been one to say, write what you know and keep it at that or personify yourself in your narrative. There are people who believe that is the soul and the crux of storytelling. I don't. My friend Rob Johnson, a few years ago, we were talking about Adam and the, some iteration of the, the book. This was like maybe round two a while back when it was still the one big omnibus of a book. And I'll never forget Rob's question. I do, in fact, have to do an episode of it one day, which I'll probably entitle uh, The Hannibal Lecture or something of that nature. No, The Cannibal Lecture. That was the twist. Because Rob's question was thus. So does he eat people or does he just kind of make them into tea? And that was Rob's way of asking things. He was a theology student and a lawyer, but that didn't stop him from delivering things in a certain way with the intent of dragging the thing you're avoiding out into light, Right. I don't want to write about this because it's not a thing I feel comfortable about or I could do well without scaring away the audience. Because how do you identify with a cannibal? To begin with, you realize that's not the soul and the crux of the character in this case. And as much as other people told me to revise and change characters and I followed them, it made me realize in retrospect that whole semester, I think, year almost, made me realize I didn't know enough about my characters and, in fact, had been avoiding knowing more about them because I was afraid of what I would find. That not just not just that they would be people I didn't like, but that I couldn't empathize with them and thus couldn't give the reader a means to. And for me, you know, I'm not trying to write The Stranger. I'm not trying to write Catcher in the Rye characters who you want to despise and feel justified in doing so. 
That's never been my intent. I write from a perspective where the characters and their desires, awful and beautiful and surprising as they might be, drive the story. Mm -hmm. Do you have to like them? No. But I, in this case, had to get over my fear, essentially what you, the reader, felt about them. Because at the end of the day, I have no control for that. No, you don't. And there's an and there's another thing you don't have control over, and this is an important one too. And again, it goes back to that fear, fear that the the work won't be usable. You need to write. You don't need everything that you write to be usable. Hmm. In fact, you're gonna end up not using the majority of what you write. And a lot of people <laughs> try to avoid that. Um, but, but like when I'm writing scripts and I feel like I'm at a standstill, I, so when I'm like, so it's interesting, you, you say you don't want to revise too early. Sometimes revision is where I find the soul of what I'm trying to do in the first place because oh, I haven't figured it out yet. But that's very easy when it's a script. If I'm trying to do a review of a certain kind of like show or something like that, it's like, I know what I'm writing about. And I, and I don't have to worry about like whether like I'm acting. I mean, I do have to worry whether I'm analyzing the characters correctly, but I don't have to worry about whether I'm writing my own characters correctly. It's it, what what's there is there. So so like often what I do is I'll be like, OK, I don't like this segment or I think I can say it better or I think I know what I want to say better. And I'll take and I'll excise the entire segment, drop it to the bottom of the document and, and continue writing. My documents uh, like my scripts are a horrendous mess that is about <laughs> two thirds the excise stuff that I have yes. deleted because it's not important to delete. And in fact, it's important that I don't delete it. And then only about one third actual script. But that stuff down at the bottom is stuff that I return to. And I go, was there something in here that I that I didn't put in that I want to? Pure solution two, that whatever you're doing in the creative process, capture it. Mm-hmm. Because on all honesty, you have no idea if and when and where it will belong or what you might find when you return to it later. Exactly. And again, those ideas that you can't remember were never as good as you think they were. They might have contained the seed of something that could become as good as you as you think they were. So if you can capture it, good. Just don't beat yourself up if you didn't. Just try to, but do try to catch the things as they go by. Here's an example. One of the reasons I use audio recording, I speak and think and do not interrupt myself with edit so much in verbal form as I do when I'm typing because the eyeballs, fingers to device put me in critical mode immediately. I know for other people, it's the exact opposite. That's the most liberating thing in the world. For me, the ability to erase anything I've put down is awful. That's why I don't erase it. I, I just move it. Yeah. Having for me a forward marching device that will capture all of it that I have to listen to and dig through helps me step away from that and let go of that fear. And the other reason I record my audio, it helped me understand the way in my creative state, the way my creative mind works. And to your point, I discovered that I do not think linearly. I will write scenes in a circular fashion where I start in the middle or the beginning, loop to the end, and then go, okay, if that's the destination, if this is one beat here and this is another beat here, where does the heart of the scene lie? And the moment I find that, the thing everything leads to or away from, right? The emotional core, the why of the scene, the story, the book, the review. You can call it a thousand different things, but it's the point you're driving at that underscores and underlies everything you write in this piece. 
it might take me a little bit of spinning around or working around to find that. But once I know having listened to Mario, when I find that, then everything starts to snap into place. Oh, okay. That's why this is happening here. Right. Mm -hmm. So this falls into place there. Those three beats that were orphaned before lead into this next one. I now know why this conversational point arose. And I said, and I've learned to verbalize, okay, just to catch this down. Okay, rewind, fast forward, cueing myself because my critical mind, the one that listens to the audio, is not my creative mind. Mm-hmm. They don't think alike. And I know that sounds weird, but it, it's not it's well, I mean, it's actually very similar to how I used to write comics because I would I would find a scene that I liked. Um, and I would flesh out the scene because the scene was all around character interaction. And then I would engage a different part of my mind to figure out how I was going to get to that. And lots of scenes hit the cutting room floor just because I couldn't get there. I wouldn't force it if I couldn't get there. But it's a comic. You don't have to concern yourself too much with consistency when it, when you're, when it comes to things like that. The point is that, yeah, different parts of your mind are, are, are good at different things. And, and if you're in a, it, it, you don't want to use the wrong one for certain things so don't let yourself like like if you found out things that work for you if your editorial side works really well in certain conditions i am fantastic at riffing ideas when i'm bored <laughs> out of my mind and mm-hmm. cannot and cannot get somewhere else where i could be entertained i uh, back when i worked retail i used to get so many good ideas while I was sitting behind the counter on a day when no one was coming in and I couldn't go anywhere. So I want to, I want to circle back. I want to touch on that because that is one of the other sources of inertia. But before we do, let's just capstone or summarize where we've been for folks. The first step to take here is to acknowledge the fear that is driving or behind the inertia, the confusion, the lack of clarity, the fear that you don't know enough. The second step is to provide counter evidence, proof to the contrary. Listen to how, capture how you truly and honestly think when you write and listen to that. Watch it, observe it, understand it. You are afraid of yourself because you don't know yourself well enough to trust yourself. The other thing that leads to this confusion clarity, and it seems like these would not be the same problem, having too many ideas, right? We've talked a little bit about before about this, the block and the stymieing, the feeling that I've got nothing to. Well, you can also feel like you've got nothing to if you have too much. What's the mm-hmm. right idea? What's the one I use? You've probably heard me say before, limitations are this are the soul of creativity or something to that effect. It's basically like limitation drives creativity. If you have the world in front of you and you can do absolutely anything and no one's going to tell you otherwise and you just have to pick a place to start, well, good luck picking <laughs> a place to start. Well, as some of you might know, I have spent most of my days now as a storytelling coach, helping folks find their tale, make them come to life, or bring them to their audience or the tribe. And as part of the work, I often like to come up with solutions that work well for what you guys need most. So in this episode, we've been talking about confusion, clarity, and inertia, the things that prevent you from writing. And I found, after a lot of conversations with folks about that, that the best place to start, to begin, is to have a quick conversation, something like 15, 20 minutes. And this partly rose out of my work at the podcast, where I'd have these really fascinating conversations, and then in the first 15, 20, arrive at that one or more brilliant ideas. Because I do this for work, I'd have to catch myself and go, right, you get that one idea, but let's set up a time to talk about more. 
So I'm now at a point, thankfully, where I've recovered enough and I can also offer that service to you guys online. So if you go to 20 minutes to brilliance, that's two zero, minutes to brilliance.com slash tigers with a Y, you can look through a couple of the experiences some other folks have worked with me have had and sign up for a free, simple, easy conversations to talk about where you're at right now, whether it's the beginning of your tale or something you've been trying to find a publisher for or to figure out how to get people to follow, to like, to subscribe to. I've worked in all those environments before in corporate and freelance, but I came to the realization after many years that at heart, I'm a storyteller and I'd like to help you guys be one as well. Someone who teaches, entertains, and guides your tribe. So 20minutestobrilliance.com slash tigers. If you would like to talk, get your free 20 minutes. That's the best way to try. This is a personal personal beef of mine. I think we'll do an episode on it, and here's why. I call it the world of whatever. If anything is possible, then anything is possible. If I should say if everything is possible, or no, if anything is possible, then everything is possible. If there are no rules that restrain, constrict, guide, suggest what could and should happen, lead and guide to the inevitable, right? And obviously, if you're writing nonfiction in your life and your time, there are some basic ones we can assume, like there's the sky, it's blue, gravity works this way, and so on. Those might not seem like substantial ones, but those are all things about the world your reader assumes along with you to be true. So that when, for instance, you throw a ball and it bounces off of someone's skull, you understand why, right? Fiction or fictive worlds also need that level of George McDonald's. Flash verisimilitude, as George McDonald would say. Yeah, verisimilitude is actually one of the best words. I've actually heard people riffing, trying to go, there should be a word for how <laughs> realistic a fantasy world is if it were realistic. I'm like, there is. There's a whole, there's a whole essay on it. We'll put it in the show notes. And it's, it's, it's worth a read because what McDonald put forward was the idea that even in our most wild imaginative tale, wildly imaginative tales, there should be truths that lead to other truths that lead to certain inevitabilities over time. So that if these things are true, and if those things are true, if all of these things are true and have happened, then this too will, can, and should happen. This is what leads to expectations that you can satisfy, that you can violate, you can... Or, yeah, satisfy or violate. To expect, uh, building expectation It's all about building tension and releasing tension, whether you release it in the way everyone expects, or you release it in the ever in the way everyone doesn't. So when you are in the state of confusion, right? When you have too many things you could choose from, I'm revising chapter four of my book. And here's an it's an interesting case because this is revision that leads back into creativity. These are never linear processes. Sometimes when you revise, you discover you have to delve back into the creative state to find something that's closer or truer to the heart of the scene of the beats that you assumed were right before. The outline of the chapter has remained the same. So the scenes follow the scenes, follow the scenes. Even the emotional beats for them are largely consistent with what I had found and described before. But the beats themselves, the details, how we arrived there, I have had to, in a couple of scenes, almost entirely rewrite because there were things I know now about the world. There are truths of the world I know now that give it depth and parody and weight that seeing them within the scene insist and demand and guide the shape of it in a way they couldn't have before since i didn't know them and this is a fear i think people often 
have, oh my God, I'll have to redo it. I'll have to rewrite or revise it because mm-hmm. I didn't know what I needed to know, but now I do and I can't go back. The number of writers I have heard or talked to who have basically said they cannot write effectively if they are fighting what their characters demand. Uh, <laughs> and your and your story yep. and your world for this for the purposes of this both count as characters too. You are a character in your own life. The moment you tell yourself you are afraid and unable to do a thing, you're telling yourself mm-hmm. a story of the way things are in your life and believing that one is true above all others that could be true. So if your world is telling you, hey, all this stuff you've got you've written down, you can't use it. If your if your instincts are telling you that, well, you try it. And the one other thing I would add to that one is this is a trick for letting your story tell let, tell you what it needs to be. If it feels like things have gotten too complicated and you don't know how to resolve them, add a complication. <laughs> okay. No, no, seriously. Because the worst that happens, okay, is that you end up having to take a complication out that may be the complication that you just added. Okay, you've wasted some time. You haven't lost much. It may be you have to take out a complication that you had in there already and adding the new one lets you see why the old one didn't work. It wasn't because you don't want to do it just because it's too complicated. I don't know what to do Mm -hmm. because then you don't know why you're removing what you're removing. Instead, add. You give your story a chance. It's bizarre because adding the complications removes your ability to breathe, but it gives your story more room to breathe. So this is interesting. The, it sounds to me in a sense here that the, the goals we're talking about is to arrive at clarity. That will help you decide. Absolutely. Find what follows next. But in order to arrive at clarity, one of the ways you're suggesting is to have what you wrote as the control. It's not gone. It's still there. But now change a thing, change any one thing, add a thing, and just change it and see what that change reveals. Okay, here's an analogy for you. We talked about your story being a character. Now envision your story as a character. Envision your story as as a human. Um, All right, whatever you happen to be envisioning, all right? Now imagine that your writing of the story is tailoring clothing for this person that you're imagining. But you're not imagining the person correctly because you don't have a full idea of what they are. So your clothing doesn't fit. So... Adding that extra complication is trying random things to see if you make a piece of clothing fit better. And now all of a sudden you have a better idea of what that story is beneath. And now you can now knowing that you can tailor your story better, whether your original idea, I mean, whether that additional complication worked or not. Bizarrely, causing snarls gives you the information you needed or can give you the information you need to actually work Here's a, another approach I've, I've done to the same effect, because I know, and I think a lot of writers do struggle with the imposter syndrome, the fear that you're not actually good enough to write or share your story, or that this particular story isn't worth the reader's time, or it will never arrive at the point at which it is. And one of the things I've found useful, particularly for those kinds of fears, when they lead you to the point of not being able to write through confusion or inertia or so on, a lack of clarity, try exploring, detailing, describing a part of the story. It can be a place, it can be a person, it can be a moment in time through a medium you don't usually like or engage in, or one essentially that you have no expectations for. I'm a terrible watercolor painter. I just, I'm bad at it, right? I'm good at, I'm good with acrylics. I 
have become fairly adept with digital stylus and drawing, but I'm not good at watercolor. I cannot for the life of me control where the water goes. So honestly, when I sit down to a canvas with water and, and paints and an idea, I don't have any real desires or expectations for what happens out of it. I'm just trying to play with the media in front of me and a bit of the world that I haven't had a chance to define before, or not in that way. Likewise, I often will illustrate and draw my characters as I try to write them. So I'm collaborating with an artist now, Colet. He's working on a scene for later in the book. And this is another way of being forced, as you suggest, throwing a a skew in here to look at the world in a different way. I'm literally having to see how the story appears to someone else's eyes as I describe it, not in the text, but just as I describe I have found myself in the chapter I'm beginning to write now, playing off of some of the pieces in that illustration in these rather surreal moments I am writing. So in my narrative, there I'll use the phrase for the sake of clarity, there's effectively another side, a different way to the way to the way things are. That's perhaps the roughest way to describe it. And Stephen and I will be doing an episode to talk about that kind of phenomenon, fiction and narrative later on. But essentially it's the you could think of it this way as the place where dreams, death, and sleep all go to lights, where things are not like they are here. So surreality, here's a challenge. It's very easy when you're writing surreal to do anything because again, quite anything is possible but you lose the reader in doing so. So my challenge, the challenge all writers of find encounter is how do you ground the reader in the experience, right? In a dreamlike moment, such that they believe and feel what's happening. The heart of the scene is still real, while everything around seems unusual or strange or alien in some way. There's a, there's a real tension created between the emotional groundedness and the narrative weirdness. You've got these two beats, sad or funny, and then a deep amount of weird, right? Maybe some beautiful in there too. I can drive myself mad going, oh, that beat is too surreal. That's And I was dancing around this writing in a thousand different ways, as with a couple of the scenes in this chapter I was trying to revise. And then I looked at the illustration and I looked at my notes. He has described his journey through this part of the world, this way of the world as being on a road. So why not put them on the road, and not just any road, but the one he knows best from his own mythical fictions he had grown up with in his childhood? We all quite often adapt things from the Bible and our life or the Quran or other formative texts, right? One of my clients is actually dedicated to using those materials as a way to explore our own journeys through life. In this story, which is a fictive one, why not have him overlay or presume that some version of the other side or at least the one he's able to make sense of or go through, resembles that story in some light, right? Get mm-hmm. some grounded, play off of the expectations and the assumptions, the belief the character has, what he would see. English is a funny language. It's interesting that the very thing you're trying to do is, the that the, the you're trying to do in surrealism, what you would describe what you're trying to do is also the description of how you do it. Yes. ground it yes and 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 a lot of times and this is true this is very true in art grounding has a lot to do with your character's foot placement 
Uh, it doesn't have to. It's really any place that they contact the rest of the environment, but that's mm-hmm. usually going to be the ground. Uh, I generally have no problems with surrealism, partly because I don't care if my audience is able to follow me um, on surrealistic journeys or not, and partly because my goal with surrealism is to make the familiar alien. But you have to start with the familiar there, yes. as opposed to starting with the alien and making it familiar. And this is why always when we're do, I'm working with students and clients, in particular in the part where we learn and develop and write the tale, and sometimes too when it comes to making it come to life in the forms that it will survive and or take or arrive in, I say there are three things you need to know. Your world and your characters, your world and characters, where your tale begins and how it will end. Because those provide you with the grounding, with the means to find or arrive at the heart of the scene. And that's quite often in the surreal cases, how did we get here? The why are we here, right? Why have we decided or what have we, not just what have we offered to arrive at this place, but what are we trying to achieve here that we can, in this case, only achieve here in this instance, in this moment right now? What creates the urgency, the drive? And if you can ask a guided question, a guided what if, right? So I'm jumping a step here, but one, as you said, in the moment of confusion, lack of clarity, play around with variables, try Mm -hmm. to find a thing that grounds, ask yourself questions. What if this happens? What if it were that? What if, for instance, a dragon with multiple weird alien eyes descends from the sky and in conversation and bargaining negotiation with them and the clouds that surround them, they find themselves within the shrine that no longer exists. And when that departs, drifts away, and it's only the rain pattering left behind, they're no longer on this but the other that side, right? That's the, I had thought all this had to be one major chapter within, okay, let's all do the whole other side now. Here I am on the show going, no, you idiot. That's the end of a chapter. That revelation, that beat after that massive strange alien encounter, give that thing space, dum-dum. Mm-hmm. Let the story breathe so that when you come back to it, you can cue in this case with the rain, the clouds, and other things to say, all right, I'm evoking some of what you saw and experienced before, and now I'm going to move you into a bit of the surreality the characters find themselves in and in this case, the reflection, oh, we're not here, we're there. And if you want to, and if you thought that my advice earlier about, oh, there are too many complications, I don't know how to handle it, doesn't make it didn't make sense, what you described is the is sort of the exact same thing. If it feel you need to have that moment for that for the the beat to breathe. Yeah. So what do you do to let it breathe? You focus on what's going on like right around it that plays into it. Uh, what are those? Those are, to a lesser degree, complications. Those are, they're not serious complications, but but they're complications. And having that to, having that to dwell on, having that to fit that moment of breath on, that's your support. That's the moment you're letting the story breathe by having, by having them there. And if you can't let it breathe in that moment, because you don't know what to put down on paper to let it breathe, it means you don't have enough of them. Right. And it means you're, you've not yet, by separating those two beats out, by letting them have a chapter or so between them, you allow for yourself to dwell in the suspense, the weirdness, the surreality, mm-hmm. the somberness of the moment. As, as I've said on the show before, I grew up with music and writing together. 
So when it comes to these points where I am confused, sometimes I do, in fact, try to listen for the note I need to arrive at. And it's not just a oral sound, a URL, AL. There is a English sensation. Is a funny language. I think, isn't it? I'll share this. The word for poem and the word for song in Hebrew are both the same. That, for whatever reason, doesn't surprise me in the slightest. Yep, sure. So... In that same sense, I encounter this. So this is a thing I know I do. I sometimes try to put too much into a scene because I could see these things happening and I have to do a revision and go back as I have observed myself before and go, yes, as you had said earlier, all these things could be here, but should, do they need to and should they, right? Or in this case, can the chapter end here? Can the beat end here? Can the this part of the story end here so that we dwell in everything that needs to be dwelled in? and give the audience the chance they need to breathe. And this is an exercise we'll delve into, I think, for in greater detail in later episodes. But one of the reasons I love watching 25 to 45-minute shows, by their nature, they have to do this. If they want you to turn to the next episode, they have to pace themselves in a way that will dwell at the right place and let you arrive at the heart of the scene and then cut. So. Again, all about building up tension and releasing tension and how, and how you do that. You never want to let all the tension out. You, even at the very end, even the resolution of your story, even the resolution of your 20-book series, mm-hmm. you do not want to end with no tension left. You, like you, some things are left unresolved. Some things aren't resolved the way you wanted to, the, the, them to be. Some of them are still like life isn't going on because nothing's ever fully complete. And <laughs> and that that like like what you're doing if you ever end all the tension, it's like cutting the bowstring on a bow. Mm-hmm. That's the feeling your audience has. Maybe not as like snapping back in their face, but it's like they're not supported anymore, and there's no reason to go on. Maybe that's a really bad analogy because in a bowstring it all goes at once, but it's like. It's like if you don't have tension, that tension is the support that is pulling your audience into your story. I'm trying to find it, but essentially, this is what I pulled to from The Last Unicorn. When asked if the Lady Amalthea and the Prince will have a happy ending, Schmendrick, the wizard, replies, no. And when asked why, he says, they can't have a happy ending because there are no endings. Mm Mm-hmm. We we like to have endings because we like stories to have ends. But the before I forget this, the exercise I want to give her, and it dovetails off of your added complication, doesn't have to be necessarily into the narrative itself. It can be how you view what you're trying to write. Here's an exercise I'll give you. Take the chapter, the scene, the piece you're trying to write. Envision instead as something in a different kind of media. In my case, I like to suggest often the, the 24, 25-minute episode because they're concise, right? Mm-hmm. What's... The cold open, what's the stinger? What's the thing that works right? You and I have a conversation about this a while ago that I'll just bring up briefly. I had a whole chase scene at one point designed out until I realized it doesn't matter what happens during this scene. What matters is the moment the other character is caught. So rather than spend a whole chapter wasting mine and the reader's time on the fight and the chase and all that, one chapter ends with the beginning of that and the other chapter begins later with the beats leading up to the moment the other person finally desperately catches up. Mm-hmm. And unless, and unless there's merit in seeing that desperation, actually 
this is a point, and I realize we're running out of time on the episode, but this is like this is like an, this is like a follow up on what you just said, and it's a follow a very important follow up on on the the tension line as well, and that is, but uh, and I think it needs to be said. One of the things that commonly blocks people is they've got so much they want to do in an in a region of their story before they move on to the next thing. There's like there's so much that has to be done in this area. There are things that that have to happen. I want to play in this space before I change it forever. All that kind of thing, <laughs> but you don't. You don't get to follow. It doesn't matter that it's like, hey, these two characters were so clearly, you know, moving towards this bit of dialogue that was going to be like the like uh, this resolution of this entire arc of the. Sometimes in real life, you don't get to have that. And sometimes in stories, you don't get to have that. The plot interrupts, the story interrupts, and it drives everything apart. And it's not wrong. It's not wrong that there are things we wanted to have happen and that the audience wanted to have happen before that point that don't happen before that point. It's not even wrong if they never happen, although be a little more careful. The audience can feel cheated. (laughs) Yeah. The only real way of cheating your audience in that regard is if you say it happened and you never show it and they wanted to see it. Hmm. Um, But but still. That's one we'll have to go into in another episode. Oh, one of the worst tastes in my mouth in a book happened in that case because I was so looking forward to a scene and it happened off screen. Uh, but but the, the point is, don't be afraid of that one. And if you have writer's block because you're uh, you know because you you can't figure out how to get all the things to happen before the pivotal scene changes everything, try writing what happens if some of them don't. Try playing like, hey, this didn't get resolved, and it's still there in the aftermath. Those those two words, what if, are so powerful if you are willing to follow them. Just set it correctly. Don't go, well, what if none of this happened? Yeah. No, go, what if this happened? Going off of specificity as the soul of narrative, it's not just what if, it's what if this specific thing occurs or is or exists or could it's the rules of improv. Don't say no, say yes. So don't say, what if this didn't happen? Say, what if this result of this not happening happened? In other words, say, what, no, don't say, what would happen if this character didn't die? Say, what would happen if this character survived to do this? I, I tried to write a setting, which is not a fantasy setting in any way or regard. I didn't want dragons or unicorns or anything that fantastic in terms of creature, although strange things do a lot, do arise as we talk about in our never-to-be-aired half-existing xenobiology episode, I did have essentially the yes-but-what-if-dragons moment. Not a sense of large-scaling fire-breathing, but what if something that grand and weird and alien and still alive and fantastic were there to provide or give certain things for a price? What would it demand? And... The irony is that it answered one a question in the chapter I'm trying to write now when Adam Sun wants to see or hear about these creatures that he's only read about in books, and his father goes essentially no, because he has dealt with one or two and has no desire to share that experience or have anyone else encounter one. And two, it answered a question I had as to the end of the past timeline of how and why things went the way they did in a way that made perfect sense that I never would have arrived at had I not simply asked, yes, but what if? Mm-hmm. That is here, that arrives, and they ask, he decides, Adam decides to ask for this in this moment of time, or this to grant him in a fire, etc. And if you're worried that sounds like a deus ex machina, 
Remember, Deus Ex Machina is random stuff you pull to get out of a bad situation. Asking what if this happened isn't a Deus Ex Machina because you're not trying to get out of the situation. You're just trying to see what would happen. Here's the beautiful part. I had already written those creatures in as one character was having a, an experience or one vision or understanding of the way the past mythical parts of his... I'm not phrasing right, but Connor, the other protagonist, other friend mean character who narrates the story he has a moment where he had effectively sees or hears the story of what the creator gods or deities or people of his land were like and creatures like this did exist at that time or at least a few did and survived so it's not so much that these could ne these never were in the world it's simply that they were presumed to never truly be real as they are as real as they are one and two Sure enough, that thing arises. He's there. The question, of course, comes as he sees his missing guy. Christ, excuse the language, are you that one? Or you're that one? This fear slash recognition of you're real, but you can't be real, because if that's right, then other things that shouldn't be right are also right. And not fiction, but life. So, yeah, it it was less a, okay, how do I come up with a contrivance? And more of a, I have had this thing here. I've just fought my own fear and desire not to use it this whole time. And I do want to kind of circle back around to a promise I made, which will air during the second half of our pacing episode. As some of you guys know, and I said at the top of the show, I am a storytelling coach. This kind of work and conversation is what I do when I'm not writing for other folks. So one of the solutions I'm offering now that I've decided to offer, that I've kind of arrived as an, out of this need, people have come to me for clarity, for confusion, through inertia, is a... 20-minute conversation. Well, we call it 20 minutes to brilliance because at the conference I went to, I found myself in the first 15, 20 minutes trying to give or giving someone one brilliant idea. So rather than beat around the bush and come up with all kinds of silly branding, it's already the thing I'm doing, let's call it what I what it is. So I will put in the show notes as well, but if you guys are in a moment of inertia, of confusion, of no clarity, I would love to help you through that because in all honesty, work aside, I love to do this as do you. Mm -hmm. Chance to play around with ideas. Yeah. I, I, we, we have how many shows dedicated to this? Yeah, basically. <laughs> and seriously, if you have, if you want to um, same deal on other worlds, if you have a, uh, a, an idea for a story you want to flesh out, but you're not quite sure how, I mean, we won't, we won't guarantee you'll end up with uh, one you want to use, but we'll show you how we would flesh it out and you can get the ideas for how you can do it yourself. So that's all for tonight. If you like what you hear and you want to show you as a born, you can subscribe to us at patreon.com slash Diaries. That's with a Y for a dollar or more. There are all kinds of rewards, including access to our online workshop and Discord. Of course, if you have a story of your own that you'd like to share, or have us revise, you can write to us at my name, dot my last, and you me tires. See you all next time. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.